not to make it too long between now and the tea. Uh, but it's very good to see you. Um, we're going to start looking at this letter from Paul to the Christians in Colossae. And um, I wonder if perhaps in your life uh, you have received a love letter. If you are old enough, you may have received it on paper. Uh, but uh, you may, I don't know what happened when you received the love letter. When you received it, it was someone that you, you really fancied or loved. And so what did you do with that letter? And I suspect that you probably really savored it. You really treasured it. You read it again and again and again. You pondered over the words. And sometimes you, you thought to yourself, what does, what does she mean? What does he mean with this particular phrase? You know, and trying to read between the lines sometimes as well. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I had one or two from Joe like that that was lovely. And I, and I kept them and I read them again and again. Although I did get one that did say, don't come near me again. That's a... That was at a rocky part of our life together. Um, and I pondered over it and I thought, oh, I wonder what she means. <laughs> but anyway, thankfully, she didn't mean that for too long. Um, now, I also had, I remembered, I had a little uh, letter of love from my son, which he wrote to me when he was about five or six. And it's wrapped up in a little bit of uh, a packet of Cocoa Pops. Um, but in, it, he gave it to me, wrapped up very nicely, after breakfast one day. And it says, Dear Dad, I love you, love Bart. I mean, it's classic. It's, good, it's a good one. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, as, as paper, that is worthless, isn't it, really? But uh, as, as uh, a communication, it's priceless. Absolutely priceless. And I've kept it, actually, in my wallet for 20 years. So... Love letters, letters of love are extremely vital and important, and we do pour over them again and again and again. And when we come to reading the Bible, the Bible can be really hard to read. In fact, it's probably an open secret that in our churches, the majority of people do not read the Bible for themselves. And so we need to help one another in, the, in that endeavor. And the reason is, um, is because it is a love letter from our Heavenly Father to us. So if you're finding the Bible difficult, I wonder if you frame it in your mind that, that God, in His mercy and in His incredible generosity and love, frame it as a love letter from God to you and me. It's, his, it's, his, it's a letter that He's written for us to savor and to treasure and to read over and over again and to question and to ponder, what does, what does God mean by this? What does he mean by this? That's the essence of what it means to read the scriptures, to treasure it and to read it again and again. And also, that in doing so, it becomes very important to us and we hold on to it just as I've held on to that little note from my son. And so, if, if that helps you, it certainly helps me because the Bible can be a daunting book and when you buy one, you know, they're pretty large and thick and uh, there's a lot of pages and there's a lot of quite obscure stories. But it is God's love letter to us. Now, parts of the Bible, particularly parts of the New Testament, are actual letters written by, you know, a Christian to other Christians to encourage them in their life together. And many of them are written by Paul, St. Paul, uh, who is a missionary who went around telling people about Jesus after the death of Jesus. And, um, and he wrote in a very uh, uh, extraordinary, 
intelligent, intense, and dense way. And so when you read a passage like uh, we've just read together just now, you can read it, and it, uh, almost all of it is one sentence, and it's, and it's packed with all kinds of things. And so even the early Christians found Paul's letters quite hard to understand. And uh, Peter, the, uh, another disciple of Jesus, famously wrote in one of his letters, Paul's letters are really quite hard to understand, and that's come down to us in our scriptures. And so if you're with Peter, that's okay. That's really fine. But we're going to tackle a letter of Paul just trying to help us to understand the really extraordinary things that he's saying. But this might help you if you have read any, any of letter, uh, Paul's letters. The author Gretchen Ronovic, she said she tried to simplify all of Paul's letters into just like a few simple phrases to sum it up. And so she says all of Paul's letters can be summed up like this. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. And Timothy says hi. Those five things, that will pretty much get you there. Can I give you that? It's all right. That will pretty much get you there. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. And Timothy was a co-author in this particular letter to to the Colossians. And we're looking at this letter, which is uh, Paul's letter to a bunch of Christians who he has never met before. He's in prison. He's writing from prison. It must be tough to get a letter out of prison, tougher than even in a postal strike. And uh, and he, he writes, I think, from Ephesus to Colossae, and someone carries the letter to them. And it gets passed around to other towns nearby as well. And uh, Colossae is not a big place, not a big town. Uh, and there are a bunch of Christians there, a small bunch of Christians there who he has never met. And as I was saying, it's, it's hard to get into what Paul is saying. So I was trying to find a particular way that might help us this afternoon to do that. And I think what I did was I found a phrase that he repeats. He says a phrase twice, which kind of gets us into the meat of what he's trying to say. And that phrase is this, bearing fruit, bearing fruit. He says it twice about two different things. First of all, and actually, if you could open Bibles, there are Bibles, because I'm just going to refer to the passage and it will help you in uh, learning to deal with what Paul writes about. You might find it on your phone, Colossians 1, 1 to 14. It's in the second half of the Bible. It's quite near the end. It's amongst the group of letters uh, Colossians 1, 1 to 14. But the first time Paul says bearing fruit is in verse 6, where he says this. He says, the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, that's the message about Jesus Christ, the gospel, has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. There it is. The gospel itself is bearing fruit and increasing, almost as if the gospel was a person, some, something going around the world doing amazing things. And the second uh, point of bearing fruit is in verse 11, where Paul says to those Colossians as individuals, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit with all power, according to his glorious might. So first of all, you've got the gospel bearing fruit, and then you've got the Colossians, the, the individual Christians bearing fruit. So what does bearing fruit mean? Well, if you think of a fruit tree, A fruit tree, when the conditions are good and the fruit tree is healthy, it inevitably produces fruit in season, doesn't it? It cannot help but produce good fruit. 
Uh, I remember being in Spain and uh, just seeing a lemon tree where lemons, incredibly light lemons, were just dropping off onto the ground and the kids were playing with the lemons in the street. And looking at these lemons, they were just perfect. They looked and smelt and uh, I didn't bite into them, obviously. But they're just like amazingly fruitful. And that tree was amazingly fruitful. However, if I look at my olive tree, which is in our yard, which doesn't have a lot of space, it looks healthy enough, but the conditions are not great. And I have been going out daily looking for my olive harvest. And there is just one olive on it, which is as hard as a nut. So that is not doing the business. So bearing fruit is really simply this, doing the beautiful thing that something is meant to do. Doing the beautiful thing that naturally comes from a healthy life and healthy conditions, that uh, it's a beautiful thing that that thing is meant to do. So a tree or a person or whatever it might be, or the gospel. So the questions are these. What might it look like for the gospel to bear fruit in our city, to be increasing in our city? What would that look like? Or if here today you're not a Christian, what might it look like for you for the gospel to bear fruit in your life? Is that an interesting question for you? And for those who are Christians, what does it look like for Christians to bear fruit in our everyday lives? So I just want to look at those two things, the gospel bearing fruit and believers in particular bearing fruit. So the gospel, the gospel. A good friend of Paul, he says, called Epaphras, announced the gospel to the, to the people in Colossae. You can see that in verse 7. Paul calls it the word of truth in verse 5 and, and also calls the gospel the grace of God in verse 6. So what kind of thing did this man, this solitary man, he goes to this town, he announces the good news of Jesus to people there who I suspect none of them had ever heard it before. What kind of thing is he announcing to them? Well, I think it might be something a little bit like this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that in his love, God created the world and he created you. He knows you, he loves you, and he has a purpose for you. But your sin, the wrongdoing, your brokenness, has separated you from him. But he has done everything possible to reconcile you to him. He offers you a free gift of new life, which is given through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And as you receive this gift of life, he puts his own spirit in you. He gives you a new identity, new family, new hope, new future. He takes away all your guilt and shame, and peace and wholeness will flood your life. And he gives you a power to live a life that's beyond your own actual capabilities. And at the end of your life, you get to reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. So it's, the gospel is cosmic in its scope. It starts at the beginning. God created everything and ends with you reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. And the crucial thing is that Jesus offers you new life right in the middle. Now that, I would contend, is the best news anyone is ever going to get in life. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. I remember a man who, was, who became a Christian in his midlife. And when he became a Christian, he had really mixed feelings. And the mixed feelings were these. On the one hand, he was so joyful and so grateful to God 
that he had come to Christ and, that, and he had found new life. At the same time, he was hopping mad with his friends who were Christians who hadn't told him about this before. So it's really salutary to think and to remember that in the end, everything about Christianity, however much has been overlaid over the years and however much difficulty we as Christians have got into, the gospel is good news. It's good news for people because it transforms lives completely. And Paul looks at, the, looks at the gospel and the effect of the gospel in three different ways. I'll mention them briefly. First of all, he puts it in terms of an inheritance. You can see that in verse 12. That God has qualified you for an inheritance from him. So hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of Jesus should be like hearing like you have unexpectedly inherited a fortune. That's what it's meant to be like. That you have suddenly inherited something that you never could have dreamed possible. A friend of mine, uh, his dad found himself unexpectedly inheriting a fortune. In fact, it was a massive mansion and parkland in, in the south of England through a distant cousin that he had barely heard of. And, uh, and so this thing came to him totally unexpectedly, and obviously it transformed his life completely. So hearing the gospel is unexpectedly, is like unexpectedly uh, hearing that you have inherited a fortune. But also, Paul talks about receiving the gospel in two other ways. If you look in verse 13, he talks about it as rescue. That when our lives are all over the place and broken and we cannot help ourselves, God comes to the rescue. He says in verse 13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a very definite change of dominion, a change of kingdom, from what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son he loves, that's Jesus. And in Paul's head, being a good Jewish man, he's, he's thinking about the great story of the Exodus where the people of God are brought from the dominion of Pharaoh, where they're in slavery, and they're brought into freedom in the promised land. And he's saying, look, it's like that for individual people. When they move from one kingdom to another, everything changes. They move from slavery to freedom. And the third way he sees it is, uh, you can see in verse 2, he sees it as a new identity. So Paul writes this letter to Colossians, and, he's, and he says that, he says, this is from Paul and Timothy, and he says, to God's holy people, that is saints, in Colossae, in Christ. So let's just think about that for a moment. He calls people who are Christians saints. So that means if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You're a holy one because you've been made holy by God. It's an identity. And identity is a very contested area in culture today. But... I still think the best way of working out your identity, who you are, is to believe what God says about you. And so God says that you are a saint, that you're a beloved and holy saint. Also, he says to them, you are in Christ and you're in Colossae at the same time. So for us, we are saints in Exeter, in Christ. That's our identity. That's, who, that's our new identity. So we still live physically in the same location, but we have a new identity in Christ. And that means that we live out of a life of friendship and love with Jesus Christ. That's how it works. So, the gospel 
is bearing fruit. It bears fruit in those kinds of ways. It gives people inheritance. It rescues them from all kinds of uh, trouble and brokenness and gives a new identity. And honestly, when you come, when you move from one to the other, you become a Christian, nothing is ever the same again. So the other thing, the gospel's bearing fruit and we are also bearing fruit. So we're moving on to verses 9, 10, and 11. We are, be- we are bearing fruit as followers of Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer is not, he's not only thanking God because these Colossians got in on Jesus, but also that they can get on and keep moving with Christ. And he prays essentially that they get into something like an upward spiral so that things, uh, things start, start to move with, with God. But as they move with God, they go upwards in a good way. I'll try and explain that. So the first movement of the spiral upwards is this, in verse 9. If you look at verse 9, he says, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the the Spirit gives. Sorry, I didn't say that very well. That you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So he's praying that we'll be wise, that we'll be full of understanding, And essentially to know what God wants for us and what he wants for the world, to have insight into what God thinks and how to live. And all of this comes from the Holy Spirit. All of it comes from the Spirit of God, who we meet by immersion in prayer and immersion in the Scriptures again. There's no no real shortcuts for that. If you want to get wise and full of understanding about your faith, then prayer and the Scriptures are going to be the absolute basis for that. And so if you're at that point, then I would definitely join a prayer, a prayer-orientated or a scripture-orientated um, network at this point. So that's the first thing, gaining wisdom and understanding which God gives to you as you pray and as you study the scriptures. Verse 10 is the second part of the upward spiral. He says, you gain wisdom and understanding so that you, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And here it is bearing fruit in every good work, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So look, we please God by following his lead. So where he leads, we follow. And as we do that, we bear fruit, Paul is saying. Now remember the fruit trees, if they get good nutrients through their roots and through their leaves, if they're healthy, the conditions are good, then it's inevitable that human beings will grow spiritual fruit, if you like. It's the same for us. As we pray, as we read Scripture, as we spend time with the Holy Spirit and learn what God wants and gain wisdom and understanding, we start to live a life worthy of the Lord. It's going to be inevitable. It grows like fruit. You don't have to try harder. You just need to stick with the Lord, stick with Him. Out of that our actions start bearing fruit. And you may have noticed this if you've been a Christian for a little while. Your prayers seem to get answered more. You become more loving, more honest, more hope-filled. You start to restore relationships that have been broken. And this has an impact on people around us because we are bearing fruit in our lives as we've gained in wisdom and understanding and what God wants. Then the last part of verse 10 is the third spiral upwards. And St. Paul says, again, it seems a bit weird he says it, but he says, 
and, and here, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, he's already said that right at the beginning about growing in knowledge and understanding, but he's saying it again. So I wonder why that is. Well, I think what it is, is as you start to live out a life where you start seeing prayers answered and you start growing in character and becoming more honest and loving and peaceful and joyful and all those things, then what you're doing is you're proving in practice, in real time and in real places through the week, that God is faithful and good and powerful and he's with you. So you're proving it to yourself and you're proving it to other people. Actually, this God who's given me wisdom and understanding and I've decided to do what he says, it actually works. It really works in real life. And so when that happens, our trust starts to increase and grow. This is why we tell God stories to each other. We say, this is what God has been doing in my life. These are ways in which he's been leading me and helping me. And they are an encouragement to other people that, that, that you are on a spiral of um, bearing fruit upwards. And so the last little bit in verse 11 he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And it's just a reminder, of the, uh, you know, as you're doing all these things, you're growing in understanding, you're acting and living a, living a better and better life and then continuing to grow in understanding that he's not going to leave you without power. He's not going to unplug you and not, and not give you what you need to live that kind of life. And he's going to enable you to get going, to keep going when life is hard and continue to give thanks. So overall, this passage is basically saying in the first half, come to Jesus. In the second half, he's saying, be more like Jesus. And so he presents, he, he, he spends time in this letter presenting Jesus to us to make the case that coming to Jesus is the best decision you'll ever make and becoming more like Jesus will be your life's work and your life's goal. And I want to commend those, both of those things to you. So if you, I think we should pray. Okay, we should pray quite quickly. Because, <laughs> why don't we, like, can we stand together? So uh, if you're new to us, this is what we love to do at all our gatherings, is just, just take a little time with God. I, 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 I've said some things from the passage, it may be that God has spoken to you from, uh, from the scriptures, or just as we worshipped or whatever it might be. So it's good to just let these things sink in. It helps us sometimes to put our hands out in front of us, because the Bible says it's good to lift up, lift up hands in prayer that helps you, please do that. And I'm going to lead a couple of prayers. So the first prayer, if you're here today and you would like, and you've never done this before, but you'd like to make a step towards God, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to pray that quietly in your heart with me, then uh, please do so, because this is a good moment for you. God is here. As I said, he knows you and he loves you. He has a purpose for your life. And he wants to bring you into close love and friendship with him. So if that's you, pray quietly in your heart these words. Heavenly Father, thank you that you know me and you love me. And thank you for Jesus and all that he did for me.
I'm sorry I've lived my life without you. But today I gladly turn to you and I want to place my trust in you. Please fill me with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. And teach me how to live a life that bears fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now I would just say, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, it's good to tell someone, tell a friend, uh, and do that today, because they will be able to help you in the next steps. But also let's pray for all of ourselves. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help and presence to bear fruit. So, Father, we present ourselves to you. We thank you that you know us and you love us. And we offer to you all that we are, all that we have, in your service. Please fill us with everything we need, wisdom and insight and direction to live lives that bear fruit in every, in every circumstance and every day. Thank you, Lord. Fill us to overflowing, we pray, with your presence and your power. In Jesus' name.